I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. If you were to think about Philadelphia and its role in the early history of the United States, what or who would come to mind? Perhaps Independence Hall, the Liberty Bell, Ben Franklin, or maybe Betsy Ross. When you think of Betsy Ross, you may remember her from a history book during your school days, which showed an image of a woman sewing a flag or presenting it to General George Washington as the first flag of the United States. But what do we really know about Betsy Ross beyond that image from our history books? In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we will be speaking with Dr. Marla Miller, author and professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Marla will be telling us about her book, Betsy Ross and the Making of America, which brings the reader back to Betsy Ross's world of 18th and early 19th century Philadelphia. It also explores Ross's family life, the many significant contributions she made to her trade, and her place in history as a patriot during the American Revolution. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Marla Miller to our show. Welcome, Marla. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, very excited to have you and to talk to you about your book, Betsy Ross and the Making of America. You are an historian. You are a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts. Marla, what started you? When did you first start to take an interest in history? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, I come by it honest, as they say. Uh, my mom is a very avid local historian. And so when I was growing up, you know, weekends would be spent driving around looking at historic cemeteries historic buildings. She's a collector. And so our house growing up is, you know, was filled with her local history collections. And so I, I've just never known a time that I wasn't doing history alongside her as I was growing up. And then, you know, I became a history major as an undergraduate and, you know, sort of there you have it. But I've always been interested in history, but because my family was. I think what it is, sometimes there's people who can be exposed to history enthusiasts in their family, and they kind of go, oh, oh, gosh, we'll just put up with it, right? But then I think there's a little DNA in there, too, that some people just catch it and just say, hey, so it's something that it just ignites something that's already there inside you, because I was the same way from a very early age. My cherished possession was a, I had a postcard I got from Washington's headquarters in, in uh, Morristown, New Jersey on a school trip. And I was given a, like 50 cents to the gift shop. This is back in the sixties. <laughs> and I came home with this little postcard of, of, it was like a revolutionary war jacket hanging on a wall. And that was my prized possession, but it's sort of, it's in inside you already. So you went on and pursued degrees in history, but I've read that you have really taken a lot of interest and done a lot of research in the area of the work that women did in the pre-industrial age in America. What motivated you to go in that direction? You know, it's interesting in part because while I started doing that work, I had, you know, not a lot of hand skills myself, but I became very interested in it. So the, the short answer is that I needed to understand early American labor history because I was caught up in this other project that was my first serious scholarly work, which involved the study of a diary left by a woman named Rebecca Dickinson. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I came out to historic Deerfield in Western Mass to do a summer fellowship program that they run to help to help undergraduates think about careers in history and what you might want to do and right. and so you spend the summer learning about early american material culture and decorative arts about museum interpretation and about history research and you can then sort out like which of those three paths you know really speaks to you and 
in the course of my research for that summer's paper, which was about early American ministers' wives, I used a diary of this woman, Rebecca Dickinson, just to understand the life of the local minister's wife who she was friends with. So I was really just looking for references to this one woman, Dolly Lyman. And after the summer was over, the director of academic programs asked if I might want to take up the diary itself as a subject of study because it hadn't been examined yet by anyone. And he thought it merited that and um, that it would be good to get a student in it. And so I, for my senior thesis as an undergraduate, transcribed the diary and learned that it was just this extraordinary and powerful account of a woman who had never married in late 18th century Massachusetts. Mm. And, you know, that's a time and a place that really didn't have roles for women outside marriage and family. And so the diary is this long, painful processing of her singlehood and asking why God had given her this burden to carry. And so I wrote a senior thesis about singlehood in early America, and I needed to understand how Rebecca Dickinson supported herself outside marriage and family. And so I could see from internal evidence in the diary that she worked as a gown maker. You know, I merrily went to the library to consult what I assumed would be the literature on gown making in early America and found that there was just really not very much out there. And so this same professor and mentor pointed me to another diary of Elizabeth Porter Phelps, a woman who lived directly across the Connecticut River from Rebecca Dickinson. And he said, you know, she might show up in there. Maybe she worked, you know, for the Porter family or the Phelps family. And sure enough, Rebecca Dickinson was there and another 60 plus working women from Hampshire County. And I just thought, well, there's my dissertation, you know, to try to understand this world of working women. So that's really, it all started with Rebecca Dickinson. That's cool. You know, I've spoken to a number of authors on our podcast, and many of them will say that they they chose a topic because they were researching something else and stumbled upon something very interesting. And they're like, hey, what about this? I'm going to look into this, too, because it sparks your interest. That kind of explains a lot about it. But what about Betsy Ross? You selected Betsy Ross for your book uh, as your subject. What was it about Betsy that drew you to her? You know, that too, you know, as you're describing, was a little bit happenstance. So so I finished the dissertation on these working women, and that became my first book, The Needle's Eye. And in writing the introduction to that book, I wanted to contemplate a little bit with readers why this enormous world of working women in the clothing trades, which is what that book narrates, was forgotten now by 20th century readers, 21st century readers. And in it, I talk a little bit about popular historical imagination and how we think about women's work in the distant past. And I wanted to make a point about women's skilled craft labor. The Needle's Eye is a book that tries to examine women's work in skilled artisanal trades. So at that time, most of the literature, the scholarly literature about women's work was about housewifery, the things that women did for their family. And most of the scholarship about artisanal trades was grounded in trades that men practiced, like silversmithing and blacksmithing, woodworking. And my subject was women who themselves had skilled crafts in the clothing trades. And so I just wanted to think about why skilled crafts were hard to imagine in early America. And so I mentioned Betsy Ross because I knew that she worked as an upholsterer in early Philadelphia, but popular historical imagination doesn't have a lot of room for women making furniture. And I just wanted to, you know, muse on that a little bit in this introduction. And and again, I, I thought, I wrote those sentences and then I just wanted to be able to cite, again, what I assumed to be, you know, the scholarly literature on Betsy Ross and again found that there was almost nothing. There there were many, many books about her published that are children's books, things like Betsy Ross and the Silver Thimble that, that aren't at all trying to be historical narratives and a couple of books by descendants 
one of them quite good, quite substantial, but nothing that really engaged the scholarly literature about early America, the American Revolution, nothing that really put her in that context. And I was shocked by that. And by that time, I had developed an interest in women in the crafts, but I was also a longtime public historian. Um, public historians work with and alongside audiences. They're often placed in museums and historic sites, historic preservation archives. And so Betsy Ross struck me as a figure that's right at the intersection of my two great passions, which is early American women's labor history and popular history. And so I just thought, wow, like I felt like I am the right person at the right place in the right time to really bring her full story, the flag and everything else, you know, to a general readership. Well, that's terrific. So the book that you wrote, The Needle's Eye, Women and Work in the Revolution, you wrote that about four years before the Betsy Ross book. Yeah, it, the timing was actually outstanding. I, I feel like, I think The Needle's Eye came out in 2006 and I was scheduled for a sabbatical. And so I, I had mentioned to a colleague that I was thinking about writing a book about Betsy Ross. And my colleague mentioned that conversation to his editor at a big trade press. And like 24 hours later, I had a call from that editor saying, are you really writing a book about Betsy Ross? And, you know, at that time, it had not progressed much further than I ought to do that someday. But he was so excited and I was scheduled for a sabbatical. And so I just, you know, hopped in the car and headed to Philadelphia to see if a book on her was viable. What kind of sources survive? Like, what could it be done? And I went straight to the Betsy Ross house because again, as a public historian, I knew that if anybody knew what the source base would be, it would be the Betsy Ross house because museum professionals rely on primary sources to develop interpretation and uh, generate those kinds of reports and studies. And so I went right there and they were so kind and so welcoming. And I, I sat for an afternoon in the curator's office and could immediately see that certainly there was enough evidence to support a book length study. So I jumped right into it and it came out, yeah, 2010. Well, first of all, the time that you spent down there was, uh, must've been significant because you were able to put so many rich details and the incredible research that went into that book. But we'll talk about that in a second. I want to talk about Betsy Ross now. So when I was in school and I had my little history books and occasionally some of the children's books, I heard about Betsy Ross and I, I used to see pictures or drawings of this lady who looked like she was probably in her fifties or sixties. And she's sitting in this little parlor and she's knitting a flag and George Washington standing there. And the story was that George Washington decided he was going to walk into her house. I didn't know that she was an upholster. I didn't know what her background was. I just figured she was good at, sounds simplistic, that she was good at sewing. Right. <laughs> That's the legend, right? That's what you heard. And that uh, she just made this flag and bingo, here it was, the first flag of the new United Colonies of America. And um, that's what I thought for a long time. And, and she would often get like a little, like other topics in American history, you get little little box in the corner of a page or something like that. So after reading your book, first of all, right off the bat, I think of her name as Betsy Ross. Her real name was, let's see if I get this right. <laughs> her, her name ended up being really Elizabeth, Griscom, Ross, Ashburn, Claypool. <laughs> so, Nicely done. I wrote it down or I never would have remembered it, but uh, the name itself gives a, a lot of information about her history and what happened with her. But can you tell us something about, we'll call her Betsy for the sake of ease here. What were her early days like? What kind of a community in, in her early days did she grow up in? We don't know exactly where she was born. She might've been born in New Jersey or she might've been born in Philadelphia. But what we do know is that she spent her childhood in Philadelphia on Arch Street where her father owned a big house. 
He was a carpenter. It's a big artisanal family. Uh, she's one of 17 children in the end. Wow. So she grew up in a big household you know, in a city, in one of the largest cities in North America. So it's a very urban upbringing. And one of the things that we know is that when she became a novice upholsterer, she was walking down the street to join one of her sisters who already worked in this upholstery shop of a man named John Webster. So we can picture her and, you know, as a teenager, a young teenager going to work as one did at that time and learning a trade. And so, you know, we picture her in the hustle and bustle of a city in a very large family in a very large house that her father was able to build. I mean, obviously when you're in the building trades and doing work for yourself with your colleagues, you know, his, he can build a little bit better and nicer house than he might've bought. And so, um, so that's how I picture her in her youth. They're members of the Quaker community. And so we know that um, she would have attended Quaker meeting and that would have probably been their closest social circle is Philadelphia's you know, large Quaker community. Yeah, and actually as, as the book indicates, the fact that she was in a Quaker community played very heavily in the story with regard to her personally and her interaction with the Revolutionary War that was going on, and and the you know the social makeup of the area, it's, it's so critical, really, in there. But what I find out, so she she becomes she takes on a a trade in effect as an upholsterer. Now, I think of an upholsterer as somebody who's going to be stuffing couches, and I, I don't over I don't want to oversimplify it, but somebody who's who does cushioning and and upholsters furniture and things like that. As a matter of fact, I had a great, great grandfather who was an upholsterer. He was an upholsterer for a railroad. So he was in charge of keeping the seats uh, in order and stuff like that. But your book gets into the detail of being an upholsterer was far more than just stuffing furniture. There was so much more. Can you tell us a little more about what the upholsterer back in, in Betsy Ross's day would have been responsible for doing the types of things that they did? Yeah, yeah, I, I found that so fascinating. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, when I started all this work, I didn't know how to do anything. And over the course of my studies, I realized I, I need to learn how to do things to really appreciate being a maker. What does it mean to be a maker? So I, I took up knitting and I've been a very avid knitter over these years. Now I'm learning to quilt and learning to sew. And so I, I have long had a fascination for making. And so when you think about that trade at that time, it really would have been all of domestic interiors. And so in addition to the making of upholstered furniture, as we think about it, the stuffing of chairs, women like Betsy Ross would have made curtains. They would have made cushions. Uh, she made a powerful number of tassels, which I just find charming, the idea that these women would sit around tables fabricating tassels. But one of my favorite finds in the research was that she was trained by a woman named Anne King, who during the non-importation movement advertised herself as being the foremost tassel maker in the colonies, which I just, I sort That's of love. Great. Yeah, I love that. And so, you know, like that kind of work, um, People might be able to imagine the sort of curtained bedsteads if, if, uh, if listeners have been in historic house museums that have those curtained bedsteads, that sort of fabric around the bed was a lot of what she would have been doing. That involves making a valance that you know tops the four poster bed and then the long curtains on the side. You know, a lot of that long straight seaming that is an obvious um, counterpart to flag making that that she would eventually take on. And so it's all of that chair covers. One of the things that becomes possible and fashionable in this period is having your furniture be what we would call en suite, which is everything matches. And so for people to achieve that look, you might purchase, you might already have your chairs but now you want them to all coordinate. And so you purchase fabric and people make slip covers, what we would call slip covers today. And so it's really everything to do with creating fine, fashionable interiors. Okay, did I also read that the Venetian blinds? Yes, 
yes, I love, I love learning about Venetian blinds. Yes, uh, they were also just coming into vogue and they were especially appealing in an urban context. You know, if you can think about walking down the street in a city and how close you are to many of the windows, one of the advertisements that turned up during my research talks about how Venetian blinds are um, advantageous because they prevent you from being, quote, overlooked. And so, you know, you can, you can let light into your home and, you know, sort of prevent the gaze of passersby. And so that's the kind of thing, if you think about the way work was gendered in that period, uh, a man in the shop would have produced the slats that create Venetian blinds, but then the tapes that bring those blinds together could have been woven by women and applied by women in the upholstery firm. So that was an example of the kinds of ways that men and women collaborated in, in an upholstery shop. There's a famous engraving, and I published it in the book, that depicts work in an upholstery shop. And I always like to notice that there are two men in the picture. Uh, one is the obvious shop owner who is gesturing toward his wares. And another is a man coming down the stairs with a stack of mattresses on his back. Mattress making was a big part of the upholstery trades. And then there are five or six women around a table. And so, you know, when we think about, again, if we think about upholstery shops in early America, we might imagine a room full of men but the image we have is a room full of women, because that's just a lot of sewing and fabricating that has to happen. Well, that is very interesting. And I, I know also that Betsy met her first husband in an upholstery shop. Is that correct? Yeah, he was a fellow employee and apprentice. And so that's where they connected. He was Anglican and she was Quaker. And so their union was frowned upon by the Quaker community, but um, they did not let that stop them. And they they eloped to New Jersey and, and got married. It's so funny to hear I eloped to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And actually, there was a, a little bit of a history within the Griscom family of people kind of running up against the, the Quaker congregations and because often because of who they chose as their husband or wife, I guess Betsy kind of followed suit a little bit in that area. So this man, John Ross, so that's how we get our Betsy Ross. He actually did not live that long after they got married. And it partially or, or maybe entirely was related to the fact that he was participating, as was everybody else in Philadelphia, in the events leading up to and the American Revolution and all the hardships that came with it to the city. Can you talk a little bit about the impact on Betsy and John Ross during those turbulent years leading up to and in the revolution? We know that they were supporters of the independence movement, in part because when John Ross died in January of 76, it was... Um, part of the legal practice at that time to do an inventory of everyone's possessions. And in the inventory, there is a listing that shows that they owned a couple of prints that depicted events in Charlestown, Boston, Massachusetts, in the run-up to the revolution. And so it's nice to find that evidence of what side they were on. We don't really know whether John Ross, the family legend, as it gets passed down, there's a mention to the notion that John Ross died protecting some munitions cache that exploded. I was never able to find evidence of that. And so I don't know the source of that story. I don't know whether or not it was true, but certainly she finds herself widowed in the same season that Thomas Paine's Common Sense is published. And that was really transformative. And so, you know, there were these various events leading up to independence, and I'm sure they were affected by things like the non-importation movement. You know, it's difficult when your trade depends on imported goods to, you know, your patriot shoppers cannot very well, you know, show off their newly decorated parlor with imported goods without running afoul of people, you know, who are trying to adhere to the boycott. And so I imagine that was very challenging for them professionally. They were, after their marriage, they started their own little business. So it's just the two of them, presumably. 
And I'm sure that was very challenging economically. And of course, everyone was very fearful as the conflict heated up that the British Navy was going to be arriving shortly in Philadelphia. So I'm sure that there was a lot of fear as those events seemed to loom. And then of course she finds herself widowed just as that is all really getting hot in the city. And so, um, you know, it's hard to imagine what that felt like for a young couple at that time wondering. Then as you alluded to earlier, the Quaker community is trying to remain neutral. Mm -hmm. Not an easy thing to do in, in a hotbed of revolution. And so I imagine that, you know, there is a lot of fear and anxiety in those months. And then, of course, the loss of her husband, you know, had to be terrible and accompanied by this fearfulness about the future. That's one of the reasons I think, you know, when I talk about the moment where she is reported to have made the flag where Washington comes to her, it's important to think about where she is in time. You know, she is newly widowed. People around the city are worried about the arrival of the British Navy. And so the colony begins to prepare for that. And part of that preparation is outfitting ships. Women around the city are getting contracts to make the suites of flags that all ships require. And I'm sure she's thinking like, this is a revenue stream. Again, thinking about the upholstery business being slow at that time. This is a revenue stream that is very important to the young widow. I think she's just trying to get on the Rolodex of these provisioners. And so I, I often encourage people to think about her as Betsy Ross government contractor. You know, she would very much like to become a government contractor and have a steady income. That makes a lot of sense because it's, it's great to have, you know, great ideals and there's so much going on politically and in the communities in an uproar. And some people are thinking, Hey, let you know, we're loyalists and other people are saying, hey, if you're a loyalist, you're against us in this community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to always remember, she's still got to eat. Yeah. <laughs> Paramount. Nothing matters if you're not eating, right? <laughs> now, she didn't have any children with John Ross. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. So she still, she needs to earn her way. She needs to get these contracts and keep earning. So let's come back to the legend itself about the flag and Betsy Ross making the flag for General Washington. So I took it as fact as a kid. I'd never really studied it that much, but you're, you do a very good job in your book, really revealing what we do know about Betsy Ross and that legend. And we really have to sort of decide for ourselves based on the facts. And you do a great job pulling together all the facts that surround where Betsy would have been, what she was doing, what the community was like, what the times were like. But first of all, the first error in my thinking that we need to dispel is the fact that Betsy Ross was only 24 years old in 1776. She wasn't middle-aged and she wasn't just sitting in a parlor sewing. <laughs> she was earning a living. If indeed that, that scene happened, she would have been 24. She was a young woman, recently widowed and, um, what can you tell us then about what you know of the legend and how you went about trying to define whether or not that could have happened? What are the pluses and what are the minuses to any particular pathway you might decide to take? Yeah. So one of the first things that I did when I was trying to discover whether a book was possible is read the series of affidavits that recount, they're the source of the flag story as we've learned it. So the, the short course there is that, and this is actually one of my favorite parts of the whole story, but in the first half of the 19th century, Betsy's daughter, Clarissa, who had joined her in the flag making enterprise, they worked as a partnership for many years. Betsy died in 1836, Clarissa persisted as a flag maker. But in time, she was ready to retire, and she was going to move out to Iowa, where her daughter had moved. And before she left the city, she sat her nephew down, his name was William Canby, and said, like, I, I want you to take this story down. Now, I think she did that. Canby is often 
is always the hero of, of this story when it's told, but Clarissa is the real hero of this story. She wanted this story preserved in Philadelphia. And I think that is because by the 1830s and 40s, the histories of the revolution are beginning to appear. And so there are books about Philadelphia and the revolution, about women in the revolution. And there's a book about the flag that comes out in the 1850s. And book after book appears and you know there's no mention of her mother. And the flag book comes out and it literally says like, oh, if only we knew about that first flag, but that is just lost to the midst of time. And Clarissa's thinking, well, I know something about that because she had heard her mother recount this story about Washington coming to her shop. And so she sits Canby down, he takes it all down, but then the civil war breaks out and people have more important things to do. And so it all gets set aside. But after the war, Canby goes back to the project we can talk later if you want to about that watershed moment in the history of the flag. But he begins to try to document that this family story is true. And, and he, he's unable to find archival evidence that supports it. So he asks older relatives, including Betsy's last surviving daughter, to just go to a notary, tell the story as they heard it, and like, you know, set it down to paper. And so those affidavits are the seeds of the story as the nation came to learn it. He wound up giving a talk to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in 1870. And that's kind of its, its release into culture. But so in that telling, George Washington, Robert Morris, and George Ross come to her shop in the spring of 76, and they have a drawing of a flag that they envision and are asking her to make. And, and according to the story, she looks at it and says, well, that's fine. These you know, red and white stripes are easy in the blue canton, the field in the corner, that's good too. Um, but I see here that you have these six pointed stars and let me show you something. And she then allegedly folds some paper or cloth just so, and with one snip of the scissors, out comes this five pointed star. And the men, you know, oh, yes, yes, wonderful, wonderful, run with it. And so then she's supposed to make this specimen flag and they take it to Congress and everybody cheers and, and there you have it. And that's kind of the legend as it gets passed down. I'll note that she did not tell that story. Like there is, there is nothing in that story about her making the first flag. That is not the point of the story. Mm -hmm. The point of the story is the snip of the scissors and the five-pointed star. And so again, I look at that and what I see is this aspiring government contractor saying, if you need to order a lot of these, my expertise tells me that this superior design would allow fabricators to work better and faster. And that was the thing she was proud of. She did not go around in life saying I made the first flag. She wanted people to know that the father of our country came into her shop and she taught him something and that she contributed to the revolution in this one way. And so I, I always get a little frustrated and I point out all the time that um, how many of us, if our elders hear us tell a family story, will say like, oh my God, that is not how it happened at all. That is not what I said. You know, like I, I often think she's spinning in her grave to think at how her story has been mangled over the years. But, um, but that's the story. And, and so like you point out, the pictures of her always put her in a parlor. And again, those pictures that you're thinking of, you know, they were created, these iconic images in the late 19th century, which is a world away from the late 18th century. And by that time, middle-class white women sewed in their parlors, you know, they didn't work the way she worked. And so it, it was not envisionable to put her in a shop setting. And so I think, I think those images really do her a great injustice because they make something seem domestic and recreational when it was skilled and commercial. And the, the other thing about that, that, that I feel like sells her short is that in her trade, which had a lot to do with shipping, right? She's supplying ships. 
Her nephews go on to be ship captains. Her, her um, son-in-law is a ship captain. For her to succeed in her craft, she had to have a good understanding of global events. She winds up sending flags to the whole Mississippi Valley, garrisons in New York and New Orleans. Her sons are sailing the globe. And so there is something about that parlor, you know, when she's sitting by the window with this flag in her lap, that I think also might lead one to believe that her horizons were small when her horizons were huge. Like she knew the price of sugar in Demerara. She knew, you know, what was happening with global trade because she had to know. So uh, yeah, those images are so misleading. They always just kind of get under my skin. Yeah. You know, I think about Philadelphia and it was a port city. So you would get news from all over the place. There was so many mariners who came in into the cities. And, and as you mentioned, she was a businesswoman. And I think it's clear from the evidence that you found that she was a supporter of the revolution from a standpoint of uh, a patriot. She was a patriot. And uh, I think that's evidenced uh, to some degree by the fact that she was she was actually making cartridges with musket balls in it. We actually saw some of those in the Betsy Ross Museum, which was really cool. And I knew about it because I had read about it in your book already when I saw it. So I thought, this is really cool. So I was explaining that to my wife and grandson, what, what she did. So that, I mean, that's clear evidence, right? But, you know, it was a tough time. So she had to keep working. But then the British occupied Philadelphia. What, what do we know about how Betsy might have fared during the occupation time? You know, we don't know as much about that as I'd like to. I mean, by that time, she remarried after John Ross died. She, she married a, a mariner uh, named Joseph Ashburn, and they had a little girl, but he was away. And so she weathered the occupation now as a young mother. And, you know, the occupation, again, it was a time of great scarcity. And I often wonder if she found herself having to work for British clients, the, you know, the British military occupying the city again, just to keep food on the table. I've often wondered whether that could have happened. But yeah, I, th I think that must have been a very challenging time for her, where again, you're walking on eggshells all the time and worried about what's, what's coming, what's going to happen, who you say, what you say and who you say it to. I think it, you know, it just must have been a nerve wracking period in her life. That must have been terrifying. Now, you mentioned Joseph Ashburn, her second husband. He was a mariner. So in your book, you indicate that he became a privateer. So he was out on the seas. Of course, privateers, they were sort of sanctioned officially to go out and harass enemy ships. And he was captured and he ended up in a jail in England in a very bad jail under terrible circumstances. And then there's kind of a, a meeting between Mr. Ashburn and the man who would become Betsy's third and final husband, John Claypool. Could you tell us just a drop about that? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of Philadelphia men became privateers during the war and John Claypool was another, and he was also captured at sea and wound up at this mill prison. And the two men became friends. And so when the prisoners were released and John Claypool returned to Philadelphia, he paid a call on Widow Ashburn really to just, you know, share what he knew about Joseph's death. And, you know, you can just imagine that being a courtesy call that a person would make. And they wound up, you know, finding something together. I, I often comment to people, you know, Betsy Ross left no papers. We don't have a diary. We don't have letters. There was one letter that she, that I was aware of when I was doing the research that was no longer findable. Uh, and so for me to understand what kind of a person she was, I have to deduce it from choices she made. I don't have her voice. Right. And, and one of those is this union with John Claypool, because if you, and this, this can mean nothing, but if you look at statistics, people in her time and place, a widow typically, it takes about two years before somebody remarries if they do. 
but she and Claypool marry right away. And I take that as a sign, and it's 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 one of a few of what I perceive to be a very decisive nature. You know, that she she had a little kid, she met this man, and I I often say John Claypool is my history boyfriend. Like I he just seems <laughs> to me like like a a man with a twinkle in his eye, you know, just, he just seems by the accounts that survive as a, as a lovely guy. And, you know, here's the man that she can start a family with now that the war is over and they, they marry quickly. And so I just, I, I like that thought that she kind of knows what she's about and she has met, you know, a suitable match and he seems lovely and there they are. So, so yes, that is the final in her, in her very long name. That's when she gets Claypool. It's wonderful the way that you take the information you do have and you can piece together things that you don't have and with some reasonable amount of confidence because you know you see the way someone behaves in certain circumstances and situations, what have you, and you can sort of say, hey, they probably were thinking this or whatever. You can't say it definitively, but if you have a wealth of information surrounding the character, you can sort of piece it together. And I think that's the most fascinating part of history and historical research and historical inquiry. So kudos to you on that. But I just wanted to mention something to you. One of the recent interviews I did was a man, his name is Bud Anderson, and he's 100 years old, and he was a P-51 Mustang pilot in World War II. Tremendous guy. And he told the story about a friend of his who was, uh, who was killed overseas. And he came back and actually visited the wife of that friend. I can't remember specifically whether he broke the news to her or he came to console her after she found out. But the, the two of them ended up getting married and they were married for over 70 years. Really? Yeah. When you mentioned about Mr. Claypool, coming back and talking to Betsy about Joseph Ashburn's death. It made me think about that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I expect that he probably called on other people and other people who were, were, you know, that's just a thing that people would do because of course, you know, she would be desperate for information about her husband's final months and what he went through over there. So as, as were all the widows who, whose husbands died in that prison. So, yeah. You know, the other thing I think about when I was reading your book is that how quickly information is at our fingertips now? Like we, we just, we want it now. What, what happened now? You, you refresh your phone on the news to see what, what else is new? What else is new? What else is new? People had to wait months and sometimes years for information. I mean, in Philadelphia, it was probably better because you were getting people off these boats who came with stories. You had the government, you know, sitting there, you know, the Continental Congress was there a period of time and and the new government was there in the early years but there were even they were you know waiting and waiting and waiting for the news of loved ones or what have you so i think we always have to remember that you know and why people did what they did because they didn't have this information yeah. so we know that she ends up marrying john claypool and they have a number of children together correct yeah they have a a number of girls and so she winds up as the mother of five all, all girls. So there's uh, the male line does not continue. So the book goes on to say that as, as time progresses and you go into the 19th century and th there's a lot of people that seem to be coming in and out of the Claypool house, their own children, nieces, I think some nephews perhaps, and maybe, maybe later on, if I'm correct, there were some grandchildren, people coming in and out of the house always seem to be people there. But I do understand that in the period right prior to War of 1812, that Betsy got really busy making flags. Can you just tell us about that? Yeah, um, this was a fun, fun thread to pursue in the research. So, so there were a number of women, you know, working as flag makers in Philadelphia during the revolution. And one of them was a woman named Rebecca Flower she kind of had the contracts, you know, locked up. She had a daughter named Mary who married a man named Pickersgill and moved to Baltimore. 
Now, that name, Mary Pickersgill, might be familiar to some listeners as the maker of the Star Spangled Banner. So they are obviously an important flag-making family. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Betsy has a similar story because her daughter, Clarissa, who helped her in the flag-making business in Philly, also moved to Baltimore. Clarissa is widowed and decides to come home to Philly to be with her mother at the same time that I believe, I, now I can't recall if it's Mary Pickersgill or Rebecca who's widowed, but the Southern mother-daughter team decides to unite as well in Baltimore. So Rebecca Flower leaves Philly to move to Baltimore about the same time that Clarissa leaves Baltimore to come to Philly. And this creates an opening at the Schuylkill Arsenal in terms of these flag contracts. And so we start to see many, many contracts executed by Betsy Ross with the help of her daughter, Clarissa. And so the evidence for that survives in in published reports of the, the various orders placed by the arsenal. And so we know about dozens of flag making orders that she filled you know, as you say, in the in the run up to the War of 1812. And sometimes these are suites of like six garrison flags at a time. And garrison flags were huge. And so, again, like not a woman sitting in a window seat stitching. Oh. <laughs> these were big flags. They needed a lot of space. They required a lot of stitches. And then by that time and over time, Betsy and John's house becomes kind of the center of gravity for this large family. Mm -hmm. And so, as I mentioned, she has many, many sisters and brothers, and she's close, it seems, to her sisters. And, you know, when a sister dies, those daughters look to Betsy. And so some of them become employees in the shop. Uh, Some of them move in with her from time to time. And so I really see by then she's on South Front Street in Philadelphia. And I really see that household on Front Street becoming sort of the capital of the family. And and a lot of a lot of energy is kind of moving in and out of there. But, yeah, we see her making flags for these garrisons all over the place. And also at that time, there was a unit of government called the Indian Department Mm -hmm. and among other things, it provisioned expeditions that were looking around West who needed to be prepared for contact with native people. And so there were suites of ceremonial goods that were part of that uh, encounter. And so um, these Indian flags, they have the same red and white stripes that the, the nation's flag has. And the canton in the corner has a painted depiction of the seal. And so for that, she worked with a sign painter named William Barrett. And so she would fabricate the banner and then he would paint the sign onto it. And those were purchased by the Indian department as part of the provisioning of these westward expeditions. And so again, we see her handiwork going, you know, to who knows where in the West. And so again, like her, her horizons were big. And that was a very productive and active time for their household. Yes. And uh, I mean, people have to read the book, but uh, just from that point on, I, I noticed that she was both very productive uh, from a business standpoint. She was getting these big contracts. She was working really hard. They were cranking out a lot of stuff, but there were also some reports, documents that you came across that indicated that they were also getting some aid from the Free Quaker Church. So I I guess if you put two and two together, yeah, she was making money, but there was this huge household that seemed to be absorbing (laughs) anything that they were earning. But she just seems like one of those people who's, she was there to hold the family together. She was the person they went to when there was a problem. So she went on, her her husband does pass away and she lives to be quite old and uh, she passes away. And It seems to me that there were, because the family seemed very close, the extended family was very close. You know, it's hard for families to stay close for that many generations, but it seems that for the most part, they did. And that's why you had all these, you know, these affidavits that were were filled out and everything like that. And and as you said, um, 
you know, I think it was a grandson you mentioned who had spoken to a historical society. And so you get a lot of the story from the family. It's just a wonderful story that is so well-researched and very enjoyable. And you, and you get this picture of this woman. It almost makes that legend very unimportant, really, in the bigger picture of, you know, who this person was. She was amazing. Oh, and just one note about the five-pointed star versus the six. We went on YouTube and we found this woman dressed as Betsy Ross, and she took a rectangular piece of paper and she showed you how you make a couple folds, make a couple cuts like that. Boom, 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 five star, you know, five pointed star. So we knew we were going to the Betsy Ross Museum. So my wife, my grandson and I all at the same time got this piece of paper and we tried to do it. <laughs> I can't I do, do it. it. You'd think I could do it, but I can't do it. They, <laughs> I, they have tried to teach me. I am terrible at it. <laughs> so I give Betsy Ross a lot of credit in that department. So Marla, what is the most important thing that you would want a reader of your book, Betsy Ross and the Making of America? What, what's the most important thing that you would want a reader to come away with as far as what they found out about Betsy? You know, I think it would be an appreciation of her as a hardworking woman who went to work as a young teenager, worked decade after decade after decade to keep food on the table, to provide for her family, to provide for her extended family. You know, just the kind of woman who's just getting it done, as we would say, you know, just hardworking and, and appreciating that about her beyond the flag legend, which I agree is, is not the most interesting thing about her by any stretch. But then also seeing her not as exceptional, but representational. Because there were women, we only know about Betsy Ross because of that flag story. So I guess it does something for us. It invites us to think about her actual life and what it was like. But there were hardworking women doing that all around Philadelphia. I, I get asked all the time whether she was unusual in having that business. And of course she was not at all unusual. That's what women did in the revolutionary era. And so I think, I think what I would want readers to come away with is an appreciation of the labor and effort behind life in early America, the day-to-day, -day, you know, just getting food on the table, the day-to-day, -day, and also the making of beautiful things like tassels. Like it's all, it's all enriched by thinking about the lives behind that. So the next time you're in a historic house and you see a beautiful anything, I hope readers will think about the people who made it. You know, you see a beautiful chair, a beautiful table. We could extend that beyond the 18th century to think about the people who made the things that we enjoy today and to really appreciate the work that went into it, the skills that went into it, and the ways that those skills sort of entangled people in their you know, communities, the consumers, the other workers, the neighbors, you know, to really think about how the making of things opens a window onto the past. That's terrific. And it, anything that brings us back to understand what people were like, what they did, what were they made of? <laughs> you know what they made of, as well as what they made, right? Yes, yes. So I like important. that phrase. Yeah, it paints a nice picture and it brings us back. And if you could go back in time and you could walk into Betsy Ross's upholstery shop late in her career, maybe right before she was about to be done with it, which was not too many years before her death, other than the obvious question of, did you really make that flag for George Washington? Did he really come in? Let's put that one aside. What would you like to ask her? Oh, what a good question that is. I think I would want to hear her talk about her craft and what she's most proud of. You know, we have this flag story, so we assume that that would be the answer. But for all we know, she would say, oh, those bed hangings I made for the Chu family were spectacular. That is the best thing I've ever done. Like, <laughs> I would like to know, like, what, what of the many, many things she made over the course of her career brought her the most satisfaction? I like that. 
Marla, how, how were you personally impacted by researching and writing this book? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um, so many things. I, I will never do a project that's as fun as this one was. I mean, it was a great joy in the archive. I met so many wonderful people along the way. But I think I think the thing that will I can I can say with confidence has stuck with me because I was just talking about this at a totally different event yesterday. In the course of the work, I came to know several of her descendants. Some of them hold objects in the family history. And, and there was a wonderful museum exhibition based on the book at Winterthur. And so I got to meet several of her descendants through the gathering of artifacts for the exhibition. But there was also um, one of her descendants who was himself writing a book about the legend. And he was very committed to showing that the legend was true kind of as written. And so he was not always as pleased as I was by the questions I was asking about the veracity of elements of the legend. Mm -hmm. But talking with him, helped me remember that Betsy Ross is not just a national icon. She's not an abstraction. She is somebody's ancestor. Mm. She has a large family and that I'm writing about their family. And I think as a historian, it is important to remember that, that there's a human connection there, you know, beyond the historical significance of somebody that you really have to be mindful about. And so I would, I would have John Harker, lovely, lovely man, on my shoulder as I was writing. And I would be mindful of what John would think of the things I was saying. And that really helped me, I think, be much more sophisticated in my analysis by thinking about what he would, what he would bring to that same evidence. And so um, I think, I think as just in general, it helped me become a different kind of historian because you're thinking not only about the 18th century, but how the descendants of those figures might think about those stories themselves or that they might know about those stories in a way that I don't know about those stories. So I, it was really powerful to me to have that experience. And, and then just, of course, all the, all the wonderful public historians in Philadelphia that I got to know in the course of the project, that was just wonderful too. Oh, that is great. So you grew as an historian. Very much so. So I got to say, when my wife and grandson and I went down to to see the Betsy Ross Museum, it's on Arch Street in Philadelphia. It is a great museum. And uh, we, we just got a kick out of it. My grandson was just riveted. I think one of his favorite things was uh, when you went downstairs into the basement, there was like a little a stairway leading up to the street. Oh, yeah. And the stairs were so tiny, like they were even small for his feet. And he, he wanted to sit on those stairs. It's so clearly original structure. And I just pictured Betsy, uh, you know, maybe her nieces or children or maybe somebody who worked at the house with them walking up those steps to go outside. And they, that's those are the steps they walked up. And it was just so cool. And the people there who worked there were just delightful and helpful. And I couldn't recommend it anymore. Just two quick questions about, about the Betsy Ross house. At what point in Betsy's life did she actually live in that house that, that has the museum? So there's some controversy about that. And the museum had, years ago, had some work done to try to discover whether that structure that is the Betsy Ross house today, the museum today, is in fact the structure that she lived in when she lived in that neighborhood. And I believe that they have found that it is probably actually the house next to her house mm -hmm. and that the house that she literally lived in probably stood with a courtyard to the museum stands today. And that that is easy to explain because by the time these affidavits were made in the late 19th century, Arch Street was being transformed. And most of the residential architecture on that street was being replaced by commercial and industrial right. buildings. So by the time they took 
I, I believe it was her, her last living daughter passed to say, because this is the moment again, like the interest in the history of the flag is heating up. And so there's interest in like, is, is that the place where it happened? And so she's asked like, is this the house? But by that time it is, it is the only house in that part of the block. And so it's easy for someone to say, yeah, I, yeah, that's, that must be it, you know, because it's the one that's there. And so it may be that she never lived at all in that particular house. But as, as I say all the time, those houses were identical practically. And so it still does everything we need it to do in terms of helping us understand her life and her world. It's got the shop in the front, you know, the house still can tell that story. And, you know, she lived on, Art Street is so important to that family. She grew up in another block of Art Street. Her children lived on Art Street. Her daughter was married in the meeting house across the street. Like there, there's so much about Art Street that's important to her story. I feel like the, the sort of um, magical work that that house can do to think like, to think about her in that house. She probably was in that house. I mean, who knows? We don't know. But, um, but I think it still, it still gives us that tangible sense of the past that we want in order to help kind of channel that understanding. Totally, totally. And, uh, you know, the house was of that era. At best case scenario, that was her house. Uh, but what it does, it just gives you an idea of exactly the type of house that she was in. And uh, as you said, if it was next door, she could very well have gone in and out of that house and, uh, you know, been friends with the person next door. It sounds like she was a very friendly person. You know, there was a, just a couple of last things I wanted to mention personally that I have discovered since I've been speaking with you. We had a pre-call and also, you know, reading your book, but I never put two and two together. But when I first started talking to you, we were talking about Philadelphia, we were talking about flags. My father was born in Philadelphia in 1918. My grandfather was a flag manufacturer. He later went on to be more specifically a flag decorator. He went down to Philadelphia because it was a very patriotic time. It was a time the America had just entered World War I. And I actually have come across old advertisements that he, he put in the paper in Philadelphia. But I always wondered, you know, why flags? And then... I read in your book that there was an artist who uh, I think he put a painting or a mural at the 1893 Columbian Exposition about Betsy Ross and that there were a lot of flags made for that. My grandfather attended the 1893 Columbian Exposition with his parents. And I kind of, again, you can, you don't have the total facts, but you can maybe assume that maybe he was inspired by that and wanted to come back someday to make flags in Philadelphia. I don't know. I'm trying to see if I can piece it together, but it sounds like it, it's possible. You know, that's it. He was inspired by Betsy Ross. That's oh, wonderful. well, let's just go with that, you know. That. That, that's wonderful. What a wonderful story. It, it's, um, I just love the idea of him seeing that painting in that context. Did he write about his experience or do you have any of his perceptions? I have very little, except there's a lot of newspapers from locally where he did a lot of flag work, beautiful decorations, parades. He used to put on parades too. He, he did a parade in Bloomfield, New Jersey for Herbert Hoover when he came into town. He won the contract, but he would climb up. They called him the human fly. He used to climb up on buildings and put flags all over the place. He was very good at what he did in decorating, but he seemed to be more specifically in manufacturing of flags in Philadelphia when he was down there and, and he sold them. I wish I had more information and that there's nobody now left who knew him. He died way before I was born, but I can only imagine that that may have encouraged him. I have a, actually an admission ticket to the Columbian exposition that was his and some photographs that he took in one of those photo booths, but he had like a civil war uniform on. I, I remember as a kid wondering, what? My grandfather's wearing a, a Civil War uniform, but he was born in 1877, so he couldn't have fought in the Civil War. They were photo booths. Oh, my goodness. What yeah. treasures. Thank you. 
thank you for what you've done. I want to know, what are you working on now? Or do you have a plan for another book? You know, I am kind of between books. Uh, after the, the Betsy Ross project, I, I wrote a book called Entangled Lives, which takes a look at the community I live in now, Hadley, Massachusetts, in the half century after the revolution, and tries to understand all the ways that various forms of women's work knit that female community together. And so I look at tavern keeping and caregiving and cloth making and all kinds of things. And so that came out in 2019. And so now I'm just stepping back a little bit and trying to consider like what, what my next project will be. So stay tuned. You let us know and uh, we'll have you back on because this has been a wonderful interview. I have learned so much from your book and from speaking with you. Now, how can people get a copy of your book? I'm sure it's available in any bookstore that they, you know, that they shop at. It, the paperback is uh, with St. Martin's Press. And so they can obviously go to the publisher's website, but uh, I'm, I'm sure that any bookseller near you can uh, track it down. Yes, it's on audio as well. So the book is Betsy Ross and the Making of America. I did read a, something that said that the Washington Post put it on the list of one of the best nonfiction books of the year in 2010. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And the book that you wrote before that was The Needle's Eye, Women and Work in the Revolution. Uh, that's another book I'd like to read. I want to thank you again for being on our show. This has been so interesting, and I hope it uh, inspires people to learn more about Betsy Ross, to go visit Philadelphia, the historic section of town, and also to uh, read your books. Thank you so much. This has been a really fun conversation for me. I love learning about your own family history and how it connects to the book. So thanks so much for having me. Okay, Marla, have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.